Badger State Banner, 6 October 1892. Mary Sweeney, who ran away from her husband at St. Paul and has been creating trouble at Ashland with her wild mania for breaking windows, has finally been captured. Reports from St. Paul say that she was a model wife and mother, but some injury to her brain entirely changed her character. She ran away from home two years ago and since then has been held in more than 100 jails, serving short sentences for indulging in her wild sport. 31 August, 1893. Mary Sweeney, of window-breaking fame, attempted to throw a satchel through one of R. Cat's clothing store windows at Fond du Lac. She was arrested and given five days in the county jail. 6 June, 1895. Mary Sweeney, alias Mary Ricks, the window smasher, reached Eau Claire from St. Paul and sat up all night in the waiting room of one of the depots. In the morning, she demanded a ticket to Hayward from the chief of police. He refused but offered to send her to Chippewa Falls. She gave the chief till three o'clock in the afternoon to accede to her demand and then moved on to the depot windows. 22 February, 1897. Mary Ricks, the Wisconsin window smasher, has put in an appearance at Eau Claire. She was taken into custody by a policeman as she was about to wreck a fine plate glass window. 1 April, 1897. Governor Schofield will take steps necessary to provide, if necessary, for the care of Mary Sweeney, who has caused so much trouble by smashing plate glass windows. This woman once taught school in Marquette, Michigan, and Stevens Point in this state. Mary says she does not know why she breaks windows, and only does it when the craze seizes her. She uses cocaine liberally on such occasions, saying it quiets her nerves. The rose is so red.
The Story of the Bride There were two peoples that lived in the county who lived very differently from one another. The county is bounded by a great river and a wide valley, which the river's monstrous glacial ancestor had devoured out of the strata of the limestone and sandstone bedrock. It cuts like a canyon through it, and above it lies a flat and driftless prairie. In the river valley, the soil is dark as Africans and rich with odorous humus. On its soil, Indians had grown corn opportunely by a horticulture of casual seeding. The whites found harvests even more bounteous once they cleared the woods that the Indians so loved. The felling of the trees so aggrieved the Indians, it is said, that losing them they left the valley in despair. This is how the whites tell the tale. But in truth, they feared and loathed the Indians and were wont to kill them. Yet they told this admiring tale of how the Indians loved their woods. Perhaps the whites suggested this compensatory virtue for the Indians, whom they otherwise knew to be worthless and godless, because of the unforgiven guilt which they felt, seeing how few trees now stood, only those few standing around their houses that they had planted remorsefully after the decimation of all the others. The people of the valley belonged to one religious sect, and the people of the prairie belonged to another. While the people of the prairie were overtly jealous of the wealth of the people of the valley, it was religious heresy, they said, that was the true object of their justified condemnation. And it is also true that they lived very differently. Those of the prairie lived modestly and lived closely to one another, to help one another. They built a town and they established their church there. And a schoolhouse was built and a railroad was brought. They truly thrived by hard work, but also by cooperation and sharing. A co-op built a common granary and a common mill, and it was by a common agency that they marketed their harvest. Though each family took the share that each had produced, those who had a poor harvest were helped to a common contentment by the generosity of their peers. In the valley, where each farmer was wealthy, each one naturally competed to have greater wealth than the other. Each grew so much bounty that they could sell most of their huge harvest, and so each earned great amounts of money with which to build yet larger farms, more outbuildings, even private granaries and private mills. Often they had such surplus and so much money that they could dictate prices in the marketplace. And this may be another reason that the people of the prairie held them in contempt. For during years of their own hardship and poor harvests, when those of the valley still had abundance, rather than the shortages making sale price more dear and profit more reasonable, the people of the valley sometimes maliciously, so it is told, undersold the market and drove down sale price so that the people of the prairie suffered even greater poverty, sometimes forcing them to hoard their grain for a year or more, and forcing them to eat their own seed to survive, thus worsening their poverty. In truth, 
It was the intelligent speculation and the natural wealth of the industrious valley people that may rationally account for it. It was not malice. It was natural ambition. And it was ambition of a beneficent purpose, one that wished and expected affluence for everyone, as it had so providentially and deservedly come to them. However, in their great wealth, the people of the valley found themselves isolated, temperamentally wary, and judgmental of their fellow men, sensing their envy and their hostility, guarded for their wealth, believing by faith in their self-evident superiority. The church they attended catered to these convictions and welcomed only their kind. The school to which they sent their children served only their children and served them well, offering superior education which ensured their superiority. But because of this isolation and this careful independence, they were a people tiny in their number, and so it happened that they needed people of the prairie to do things for them, things which they did not want to do anyway, their time being more productively spent on matters that improved them and their wealth. So they brought people of the prairie to do their washing and cooking and housework, to shovel the muck in their barns, and to herd and feed the animals, to plow and weed the fields, to harvest the crops and store them up, or transport them to market. So in this manner the people of the valley could attend to management of production and the management of money. In this way it happened that children of the prairie and children of the valley met in the yards and the fields of the valley, and sometimes they became sexually involved. And from these incidents there were other children born. These children were neither of the valley nor of the prairie. They were raised by families of one or the other, depending upon who the mother was. But they were raised with the shame upon their birth, and were treated as though they looked nothing like their family, which often they did not. Such a one was the bride, who is the subject of this story. Her name is not given in the story. She is called simply the bride, and she always wore her wedding dress from the day that she wed until as long as anyone remembered, and must probably have been buried in it. She is called the bride because when she was sixteen, the family of the prairie who had raised her without ever telling her who her father was, and she had only guessed who her mother might have been, brought her by wagon into the valley to be the bride of a rich old man of the valley who had recently been widowed. I look like him, she thought. She was wed to him that same day, and that night the marriage was consummated. But the rich old man did not love her, and she did not love him. Still, when she got up from the marriage bed on her first morning as a wife, she expected to be treated as a wife should be treated. But she was not. Left no other clothes by her family and given none by her husband, she wore her wedding dress. She was told to work. She was given tasks in the kitchen and in the chicken yard and pig pen. Her dress became dirty and she was frustrated and ashamed. But her husband and his kin did not seem to care and did not respond to her complaints. 
Her husband, who was so old he could be her grandfather, had grown children living with him. A daughter, who had not married and who loathed the bride, and a son who had married a woman of the valley who had left him to live with her own parents, because they were even more wealthy than the old man. And she was angry because the old man refused to give his son a stake in his holdings, so that they could live in their own house. The son often went to his wife's parents' house to sleep with her. His absence left the bride to live alone with the old man and his spinster daughter most of the time. Even the son's leering harassment was better than her husband's abuses and the daughter's carping insults. The son, at least, was sometimes kind, if only to coax a kiss or grope her breasts. But her husband thought her only fit to fuck or to feed him, and his daughter thought she should be her slave and resented the intention that the men gave to her and mocked her for her raggedy, dirty wedding dress. The bride cooked for them, and when she did, the bride cooked the best meat or fowl or fish she could dress for dinner, and she always made large fruit pies, and she always baked the breads fresh for each meal. She picked and washed and prepared all the vegetables herself, yet when she sat down to eat with them, the daughter denied her any of the food that she had prepared, and her husband approved as the daughter shoved before her a dish of sticks and dirt and a glass of ditch water to drink. That is how she lived. And if she dared to even taste something that she prepared for them, she was beaten. The daughter kept a prairie girl in the kitchen to watch her, and she would go and tattletale if the bride so much as licked a spoon of batter. The bride sometimes snuck out at night, to gnaw raw vegetables in the garden. But the daughter heard the dogs barking and set them to savage her. The bride eventually could tolerate no more, and one night stole a horse to take her out of the valley. She rode back to the town on the prairie and went to the family that had raised her, who, seeing her dirty and raggedy in her wedding dress, looked sympathetically at her at first. But upon hearing that she had stolen a horse to escape, they disapproved and demanded that she leave. The patriarch of the family said, You bring shame to the family again. You are born to it, and we want none of it. And he shut the door of the house in her face. So the bride traded the horse for some necessities and took to living alone on the prairie in the wild grasses where the pheasants dwell and where there were coyotes who stalked mice and prowled her campfire, and the thatched hut of willow wands that she made for herself. She moved her abode about the prairie, following some instinct of hers, to higher or lower ground, inside or outside the poplar copse by the creek, as it suited her. The people of the town all knew her, and considered her to be crazy, and when she came to town, always wearing her raggedy but now creek-washed wedding dress, the children taunted her. But she did not mind them. She called them names right back, and she frightened them with her wild-eyed faces. She developed a familiarity and then a relationship with a clerk at the general store, where she traded pheasant feathers, arrowheads, and coyote pelts 
for goods and ammunitions and cash. Late that summer, the town knew that the bride came to live with the clerk, and though it was not approved of, no one spoke to him about it, not even in church when he attended each Sunday alone. What they had in the way of a relationship was understood but was not spoken of, and perhaps was not easily explained at any rate. She never had children. She never did stop wearing that wedding dress, and they never did marry in any conventional way. As the autumn on the prairie passed and its harvest over, the work in the valley ratcheted up, and most town folk went to work the valley harvest for the extra cash that would help them for the long, cold winter, or help them to buy school supplies and books for the children, or pay doctor's bills. It was only then, once the harvest of the valley was completed, and all its barns bursting and granaries overflowing, that the rich old man came to town to reclaim the bride and his stolen horse. No one was going to stop him, not the family that wed her to him, not the poor clerk. He came dressed in black in a black surrey with a black team in black tackle. His daughter, dressed in black like a widow, sat next to him. He came after Sunday meeting. He drove by the prairie church on his way out of town to the clerk's shanty. The town people saw him and said nothing, while the clerk, who was among them, seeing this, began to run home he was too poor for a horse. When the rich old man and his daughter drove up in the black Surrey, the bride stepped out of the shack and said, I was expecting you. And indeed it must be so, for she had arranged under the trees by the clerk's shack several huge trestle tables, draped white bed linens for tablecloths, and already they were set with china plates and silverware and laden with sweating pitchers of ice-cold lemonade and dishes heaped with cream puffs and pies and bowls of fresh doughnuts. The flies could not resist any of this, though the clerk's terrier ran about the legs of the trestles barking at them. The old man, who was fond of cream puffs, could not resist them either, while the daughter at first refused to get out of the Surrey. Soon the clerk came running, and the bride could see that in the distance coming along the road, most of the town folk and other farm families of the prairie followed him, wanting to see what was going to happen. Her own forsaken family was among them. She calmed the clerk as he came rushing up, and the rich old man could not be bothered to be concerned about him, but was busy feeding his face, though his daughter had now gotten out of the Surrey to put some poison thought in his ear concerning the clerk and the bride. The old man just grinned and laughed with a mouthful of cream puff and ate more. The bride welcomed all the townsfolk as they came, inviting them to share in the food, and indeed she had more than plenty. She had roast pigs in a pit of embers behind the shack. She had three kegs of beer on ice and a barrel of whiskey. She had potatoes roasting in the embers beside the pigs. And she had more pies, more cream puffs, more donuts, and corn on the cob. Everyone ate. Everyone ate well. And the children played tag and hide-and-seek while the afternoon waned. 
The rich old man himself drank a good deal of whiskey and beer, and ate and ate like he had not eaten for a very long time. And he was heard to remark that the only thing he really liked about the bride was her cooking, and that was the only real reason he came for her. He could give a damn about the horse she stole, he said. But his daughter looked like a boiled beet as he said it. The old man then said to the bride, Come here, give us a kiss. And she came to him, and he kissed her, and he had a heart attack, and he died. The daughter, rising suddenly in alarm, already worked up in anger, took the shock of her father's death so badly that she had a heart attack, too, and died. The coroner said her death was on account of a bad heart, but the rich old man, the coroner said, had died because he had overeaten. The bride, as the rightful widow, was sole heir to the rich old man's estate, a good fortune that was not lost on her loving family. But she declined to live there, said she never wanted to see the place again, and sold it on installments to the son of the rich old man. She said, I'm not their kind, and I don't want to be. Now, every autumn, at the end of the harvest of the prairie and the valley, on the same Sunday that the bride held the first harvest picnic for the rich old man, the people of the prairie hold a memorial picnic in its honor. And every year they invite the rich folk from the valley to join them, always picking an especially rich man to be their guest of honor. But the guest of honor never does show up, and the rich folk of the valley never do answer their invitations. So they usually have a scarecrow at the head of the table instead of the rich man, and they make speeches and toasts to it, and feed it cream puffs, and then turn it over to the children to set it on fire. Neglected. 